Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is, it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. And as you're being seated, let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, our hearts are heavy this morning uh, through some news that we didn't really want to hear. But we thank you and we praise you that you continue and still are sovereign over our circumstances, over our feelings, and over everything else in all of creation. So, Lord, in this text, when we talk about oaths and our speech, Lord, I, I pray that you take our loaves and fishes that we have here, our, our meager, uh, what we have in our hands, and, and, and you would expand and multiply them. You would not only do that this morning, but as, as Brant says, that a church that raised a million dollars in a month, Lord, that you would expand that and grow that and, and increase our vision for this city. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, for those of you who is, seems like this weird face up here, I'm Heath. I'm part of the team at Christ City, and I get the privilege to bring you greetings from East Vancouver. That's where I usually hang out, so I had to put my East Van formals on and come visit you here in Kits. So, you know, hence, I, I'm more dressed up than usual. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's no secret that I love to cook. And as you can tell by my robust athletic body, I like to eat as well. Um, so there was a time when I was much younger and much thinner that I went through what my kids call the salad phase. And so I decided that I was going to create this amazing salad. Can you imagine like arugula and a little bit of radicchio and some caramelized walnuts and a goat cheese? But I needed an olive oil to put on the top to just make everything pop. So I go to the store, and, and through the illusion of choice, I'm like, what olive oil should I get? Italian, of course. It's got to be Italian. Italian's the best, right? How could I go wrong? So I went home, and I made my salad, and it was absolutely amazing. And then I cooked it 38 other times, and my kids got sick of, you know, arugula and olive oil. Uh, sometime after, or long after that olive oil was finished, I read an article called... What was it? The olive oil scam. And it postulated in this article that 80% of the olive oil labeled as Italian was in fact adulterated. Meaning that it was neither Italian nor extra virgin. And I felt duped. So I was the victim of a victimless crime. Wait a minute. What is it? It said it was, in, it was packaged in Italy, right? How could I go wrong? I learned that packaged in Italy meant code for Spanish olive oil trucked across the border and packaged, you know, just on the other side of the border to say that it was from Italy. And it was sold under brands that you and I both know and love. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. If I had bought product of Italy, chances are it would have been more authentic. Unfortunately, this little scenario is something that we live with every single day. Every day we're deceived. We're duped from the deodorant, you know, the old spice effect that we've got in our deodorant in the morning to our healthy vegan lunch to even the mattress we sleep on at night. We are the victim of victimless crime. 
We're all duped in every area of our lives. Now, this sounds like Debbie Downer, right? The advertising industry, the fake news fades, our social media algorithms control what we purchase, what we think is best quality, even to what we view as truth itself. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on me. See, in our post-truth era here, we are the victims of lies every single day. And we do nothing. And we do nothing. In fact, we societally, we tolerate this lying and we co- coexist with this status quo. Why? Because it, it gives us the illusion of co- control. It gives us the illusion of choice. It gives us profitability in our businesses. Why? Why do we live with this so easy? Because we crave power and we crave control. Yuval Harari, in his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, he describes the situation in which we live this way. He says, Shared fictions in the form of news, religions, novels, sports, money, even brands fill our lives. But that's okay. It's these shared beliefs that have helped humans cooperate and conquer the planet. Okay. Scholars throughout history have faced this dilemma. Do they serve power or truth? Should they aim to unite people by making sure everyone believes in the same story? Or should they let people know the truth, even at the price of disunity? The most powerful scholarly establishments, whether of Christian priests, Confucian mandarins, or Chinese, or communist rather, ideologues, place unity above truth. That's why they're so powerful. As a species, humans prefer power to truth. We spend far more time and effort on trying to control the world than on trying to understand it. And even when we try to understand it, we usually do so in the hope that understanding the world will make it easier to control it. If you dream of a society in which truth reigns supreme and myths are ignored, you have little expect from homo sapiens. Better luck to try with chimps. Harari states here that we prefer to be collectively lied to because through these shared fictions we can maintain a semblance of power and control. We are autonomous beings, and we desire to control what surrounds us. Look at the progress of civilization. That's what we have done throughout, you know, a millennia, if you want to go that far back. These shared, via, these shared fictions, rather, are a vehicle for us to control. Now, as you can tell, he's not too appreciative of Christianity, and he has an uncanny way, though, of describing the reality in which you and I exist every single day. In fact, so much so that it's very pertinent to our text that we're going to discuss this morning. When we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, on initial pass, this fourth kind of self-described antithesis, Jesus, it seems less weighty. It seems like, why is this here? You know, it's certainly not on the level of anger, ooh, let alone lust or divorce. What would a command of oaths and vows what would that have to do with the regular world that we live in? Come on, I'm generally an honest dude, right? What's, what's with the prohibition of oaths? Aren't they just a relic of a barbaric and medieval past? But if we actually give a thoughtful look to this text, we begin to realize that as, as we speak and how we speak, it's pervasive. It affects every single area of our lives. Our topic this morning is way more difficult. It's insidious and it's acutely more personal than lust, anger, and divorce. <laughs> Jesus addresses here the integrity of our truthfulness. So our outline this morning, we'll follow the, the flow of the text. We'll look at what has been said. We'll look at the Old Testament uh, of what the laws were regarding oaths. We'll look at how the Pharisees kind of 
twisted it. Then we will look in number two at what Jesus says and finally leading up to what are the implications for us today. So what has been said? Sometimes we get confused with Jesus' statements here because we don't have a really clear understanding of what the Old Testament laws were concerning some of these topics, specifically with oaths. You know, essentially, the, 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 these commands about oaths and vows pertain around two kind of interwoven themes. One, the swearing of oaths and vows was okay. Actually, it was encouraged in the name of God. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, we read this. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Throughout the entirety of Jewish history, this was true. Even when we come to the point of Jeremiah, when, when you know, Jerusalem has been ransacked by the Babylonians and everybody's been carried off, Jeremiah discussing these events, and he gives hope to his people. He says, look, in Jeremiah 12, he says, he's talking to God, about God. He says, after I have plucked them up. I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them back again, each to his own heritage, to his own land. This is talking about the return. return. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, even as taught by my people to swear by Baal, a false god, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, they will be utterly plucked up and destroyed, declares the Lord. These two texts and many others in the Old Testament indicate a willingness and encouragement to not only swear vows and oaths, but to do so in the name of the one true God. To make a vow, to make an oath, it depended on the truthfulness of the supreme power, the God of Israel. The second interwoven theme here is that if, if you actually swore an oath, if you made a vow, you were to follow through on what you promised, period. Not following through uh, with an oath, let's just say it was discouraged. Leviticus 19.12 says this. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Okay. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 says this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And you will be guilty of a sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God and what you have promised with your mouth. If you make a vow, if you swore an oath, If you made a pledge, it had to be acted upon. If not, there were consequences to that. See, in the Old Testament, it must be clear that vows were encouraged, assumed, and done so. And if they didn't or weren't done, there was punishment for that. Why the absolute nature of this, though? That, That confuses us, doesn't it? Swearing upon God essentially is basing your words, your actions, directly upon the integrity and truthfulness of God himself. God, in effect, was the guarantor of your promises. See, in in the Old Testament, all of the promises of Israel that God based, you know, they called them covenants, and they were essentially legally binding oaths to be upheld, to be administered, to be policed by God himself. 
They were always fulfilled. They were always truthful and they were always trustworthy. Oaths sworn and broken profane the integrity of God himself. It, it said something untrue of him if you broke your oath. It, it destroyed his reputation, his fame, and his name throughout the entire world. Broken oaths defiled the God. The God by his own speech created the world. Vows and oath were expected encouraged, but binding and expected to be carried out. There was no duplicity in this. This is why in the Ten Commandments, we read this in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will uphold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, as a kid, this was like, this is the cursing. This is the cursing one, right? Thou shalt not cuss words, right? No, this has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with vows and oaths and the very integrity of God himself. So then what did the, what did the Pharisees actually teach? What did the Pharisees twist? After more than a thousand years, almost 1,400 years of practice, swearing oaths and taking of vows was such commonplace that it was actually, it started to come under abuse. It degenerated into a kind of a scale or a spreadsheet, if you will. As you can tell, I love spreadsheets. You know, what you could do, how you could lie, when you could lie, what under conditions you could lie, when you had to keep your promise, when you didn't keep your promise, and it goes on and on and on. The scalability of oaths, rather than yes be yes and no be no, was basically enshrined into a codification lying system. It created a legal culture around serial lying. And as a result is greatly blasphemed the Lord God. Look, it, Jesus himself in Matthew 23, he describes this scenario this way. This is, I can just see him fuming, you know, smoke coming out of his ears. Matthew 23, 16 to 24, Jesus says this. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that is, you know, made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if he swears by the gift which is on the altar, he is bound by the oath? You blind men, which is greater, the gift on the altar or the, makes the gift sacred? Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you have ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> Actually, he goes further on and he even gets more poignant and more aggressive. He says he actually calls them whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside and dead inside. As weird as this sounds to us, the misuse of, of oaths violated the very name of God, his reputation. And this was a very, very serious thing. You know, as, arm lower, you know, as armchair theologians, it's easiest you know, for us to condemn the Pharisees here. We think, okay... Come on, like, really? Like, really? It's like, those guys were idiots. I see it. Well, 
this true, this is true for us as well. Remember way back into primary school days, and you know when you're on the playground, and if you really wanted to get on somebody's nerves, you could tell, you could tell these little half-truths, these little lies, and, and they were okay, and they were actually accepted. Why? Why could you tell lies on the playground? If I cross my fingers, it's okay. Right? We all know this to be true. See, I remember one time, I was sitting, I was sitting in my, uh, my living room in Greece, and the kids were in the other room, and they were playing Lego, and all of a sudden, a fight developed, and it was screaming and yelling, and I'm thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. I wonder if I should intervene. You know, I'm being a dad. I'm like, nah, I'm going to continue reading, or try to. Well, after some time, kind of an equilibrium settled, and one kid said to the other, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I won't steal that piece again, in which the other replied, pinky promise? So out came the pinky and it was so promised. And as a parent, I'm like, what? I was dumbfounded, you know, as if interlocking pinkies could verify truth. But you know what? In fact, this pinky promise seemed to do the trick. And before long, they were playing Lego again and everything was fine. This is what the Pharisees did on a grandiose level. They codified pinky promises. When you, could, when you could use it, when you couldn't use it, which, which pinky promise you could break, which pinky promise you couldn't. Like, it seems ridiculous. But this level of hypocrisy, this duplicity, it created kind of like a spiritual blindness. It gave people the illusion of truth, autonomy of control. The Pharisees gave themselves autonomy in telling the truth and, telling, and knowing when not to tell the truth. The problem is, it could be probably best described in an extreme way by the propaganda monster named Joseph Goebbels. He was a Nazi. And he said this, A lie once told remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. To borrow a language from Harari in our initial quote, the Pharisees and the Nazis chose power over truth. The twisting of truth for power creates empires. The problem that Jesus is addressing here was that the name of, the, of God, the one true God, was used to justify and underwrite all of it. Thus, profaning the name, the fame, and the greatness of God degraded his reputation. And it was saying something about him that wasn't true. And this leads us to our second point. What did Jesus say to this group of serial liars? Matthew 5, 34, 37 again. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, or, or for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Clearly didn't have Clairol number 48 or whatever. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. In order to understand what Jesus really says here, we, I need to reiterate one thing that we all know is true. The Old Testament teaching on oaths and vows is there because of the sad reality that homo sapiens, us, we are liars to a person. In our dealings with others, we need to verify our truthfulness with, by something greater than ourselves in order to be considered truthful. Jesus here, knowing this reality, calls us to radical truthfulness. Jesus tells us to prefer truth to power. 
Jesus flattens the scales of power and, and structures that humanity has created to control others. And he says, don't take any oaths at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no without qualification. By calling us to a life of radical truthfulness and integrity, Jesus leaves us in a really awkward place with no wiggle room to verify our truthfulness, doesn't he? This is hard because we are addicted to power and we crave influence that comes from the world's opinion of us, don't we? Now, I rent a seat at the collaborative workspace on Venables and Clark. I like to get out into the neighborhood and it's, it's a really cool spot. And so there I was there on Thursday and I was working away on this sermon and there was a guy sitting next to me and I'm clunking away. I got my music going and he leans over and he's like, so I pull out my headphones and he's like, what do you do? And what are you working on? Are you like writing a script or something? So this, I'd seen this guy before. He's a cool guy, but I'd never talked to him before. This was my first interaction with him. And he asked, what do you do? So I told him, well, I'm a pastor and I was doing a speech, you know, kind of like a Ted talk on the existential nature of truthful speech in the modern world. Now I wasn't technically wrong. And I confess it's really a clever title. My desire though, deep down was for this guy to look upon me with a greater respect than if I said, well, I'm a conservative evangelical Christian pastor preaching a sermon on what Jesus says about our lack of truthful speech. And by the way, I'm not a pedophile. (laughs) Now, I did get around to having a discussion on the nature and the reality and the the nuts and bolts of the sermon. But to to my shame, my initial gut reaction was a response based on power rather than truth. This is how insidious and how relevant this is for us, Christ City. Let's be honest. No pun intended. We are just like the Pharisees seeking power over truth. We do so to look good in front of other people. This is probably one of the primary reasons why we don't do evangelism. This is why our online persona, our profile, our reputation on our social media feeds is carefully curated, updated, and stylized. See, it's like this. We are all like the guy who has his home office. You know, when the, he's working away, but then when it comes time to have a, you know, a, a meeting, a, a Skype call, or you know, a, a network conference, what does he do? He puts on his clothes, so he, you see him sitting there in his suit and his tie, and really he's just sitting in his underwear. The call for rattle in the call for radical truthfulness here. He, Jesus calls us to his greater righteousness. And we are undone because we are unable to do so. If, if we live in Harari's world, of power over truth. If that's the air we breathe, how do we get off the freeway and choose truth over power? That brings us to our last point. What do we do about it? What are the implications for us today? Now, aside from in a couple of weeks, we'll discuss the loving our enemies bit. Um, this text has given the historical church a considerable amount of grief. You know, is this, is Jesus speaking literally here or is he speaking, you know, in hyperbole? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you don't cut your arm off and you don't gouge your eyes out. So what do we do with this text? We, we therefore, we denigrate down to secondary issues, which are important, but they actually don't, you know, get to the root of the issue here. 
So if this morning, if you, if you are married, you've said vows of fidelity to your spouse. If by faith you've stood up here and dedicated your children, pledged to say, I will raise them before God in this community, you've made a vow. If you've been in the legal system, I won't ask why. And if you've ever had to swear in a Bible, yeah. If you've served in the military, if you've served in the, with the police, if you hold political office, you have sworn an oath to uphold the duties of those offices. If you have signed business contracts, you have made a binding oath, work for pay. If you have a mortgage, you've sworn an oath to pay back money loaned over a set period of time. Do you feel the weight of this text now? This text affects our whole lives from our birth to our death. And because we are a species that likes power, we choose power over truth every time. So what does Jesus mean then? Are we just like the Pharisees? Are we breaking the no oath rule here? Now, if we go the literalist route here, the logical outcome really is we need to live like the Amish. I'm not kidding you. If we really take this text literally, we need to live like the Amish. We, we need to not swear in the law of court. We need to not have political office. We need to have, not have mortgage. We have to be honest, just straight up in our business dealings. The Amish, I respect them. They take this command seriously and literally. In order to literally follow Jesus' words here, you have, to, you have to, to isolate yourself, to put yourself in a silo where you can control your interactions with the outside world. And the Amish have done so effectively for hundreds of years. Or you can go the other extreme route and you can say, well, this doesn't really apply to us today. You know, it's completely hyperbole and you can ignore and disregard every single command that Jesus says here. And by do, doing so, you create, you know, a, a Pharisee 2.0 operating system. One where we still are the authority and we choose power over truth. Others, such as Martin Luther and some of the other reformers, have suggested, well, maybe a middle-of-the-row option. When required by the state or by the law of the land, we will swear, but in our personal dealings, we won't. Regardless of where your conscience lies in this issue, and I'm not going to tell you what you need to believe, that's between you and God, and you need to sort that out and have a clear idea on that. Regardless, regardless of where you land on this issue, two questions still remain. How do I daily choose truth over power? And then how do we actually live, work, and breathe in a society governed by power rather than truth? It might be helpful now to remember Jesus' words. He calls us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. What is clear here for us this morning, that Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness in our speech. He calls us to a radical truthfulness. He calls us to daily choose truth over autonomous power. How do we do that when by default I choose power over truth? Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness and we're not capable of it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 36. This gives us a little bit of clarity how big the problem is. 34 says, you brood of vipers. Once again, he's talking to the Pharisees. How do you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
Jesus directly links the words we use, our speech, right to our heart. We lie. We twist the truth. We gain, you know, when we do that for power, we indicate that something's wrong off inside of us. Now, Every once in a while, you know, a guy gets hungry, right? So when you go to the fridge in the middle of the night, and you think all that's left there is really a bowl of cereal. So you pour the cereal in there, and you open up the fridge door. You pull out the milk, and you look, ooh, it's like three days past. So what do you do? You do the sniff test, don't you? Yeah. Christ City, we are far worse than we can imagine. And we need something outside of ourselves to change what's in our heart. Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness of our, than what we can do on our own, what we're capable of. And we need something to actually change what's inside of us. But there is good news. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. Now, it's this same author, Jeremiah, who we talked about earlier. Uh, the author here is quoting from, from this prophet, Jeremiah. And he says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. The author is saying, look, you didn't uphold my contract, my vow, but I uphold it for you. So I'm going to make a new one. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is profound if we really think about it. If the purpose of an oath was to verify truthfulness by something greater than outside of ourselves, i.e. God, then in a final covenant, a final oath, a final oath of mercy, a final legally binding oath, the one God on our behalf, he actually puts his authority and law onto our hearts. He writes his decrees in our minds and our hearts, and this covenant gives us the capacity to choose truth over power. We no longer need to verify our truthfulness from something outside of ourselves. God changes our hearts. God puts his law in our hearts so we can pass the sniff test in an act which, is, which the world has never seen before. The one who had all the power, the one who had all the power, Jesus, he willingly gave that up so we could choose truth. In Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his burial and through his resurrection, he, this gives us the power to actually choose truth over power. He puts power inside of us so we don't need to look for it elsewhere. Christ City, this is profound. The ancient promise given to this Jewish people is now our promise fulfilled in us through Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging with an impossible command. He doesn't leave us with no power to actually accomplish something that he gives us. 
He gives us himself. He gives us his greater righteousness in which now it is written on our hearts and on our minds. People of Christ City, this is good news. That through Jesus, we have the capacity now for our yes to be yes and our no to be no. So if this is true, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? The Apostle Peter, writing to a group of Christians who I think had kind of were really struggling with this, who were confused, persecuted, discouraged, feeling unable to bear the weight of faith in Jesus. Peter gives them these words of hope in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved then, therefore I encourage you, I memorize this in a different translation, which is fun. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter begins by reminding these, this group of Christians who they were and now what they've become. They were once in the dark. They were once alone. They were once without mercy, unable to choose truth over power. The very condition that Yuval Harari describes in our introduction. But where Harari is unable to go further, where Harari just accepts this fact and says, yeah, we just have to live with that. Peter articulates here, says, look, something is different because we have hope. We have hope that Harari totally misses. Peter states that God has written his law upon the hearts of men and that we are now a chosen people, that we are now a purified people, a new nation. We are a people called by God's own name, a people who has received mercy, a changed heart, a people who can now choose truth. Don't miss the paradox here. Peter says that we are now a people who are actually unified, not under power, but under truth. Because of this reality, because we can choose truth now over power, we are will and are at odds with the world and everything else in the world. This is why we're to expect persecution and suffering. This, exists, this existence that Peter articulates, it, it's called exiles and sojourners in the world. This is how we are to live as exiles. Christ said, in every single thing that we do, we are exiles. We need to keep our conduct among those around us honorable from our marriages, our anger, our business dealings, from everything down to how we speak our yes and our no. We are to live such, such good lives amongst our fellow peers that in the context of everyday dealings, we are to show Christ's greater righteousness that others will see, to, see this rather. And one day, one day, see and glorify God for the change that they've seen in our hearts. We are to live such integral lives with, before all people that this is what Jesus calls us to in our text. This is what Jesus empowers us to do by giving himself. And he just doesn't give us a command without means to actually accomplish. He gives us the power to choose truth over power. We have the power 
in our words, to exhibit a changed heart. And that is shown and seen by those around us. So as I see it this morning, we have two, we have a choice. We can either choose power or we can choose truth. If we choose truth, we will have the capacity in our speech and in our integrity to be reborn. We will sacrificially walk in society, pointing our good deeds to the God who has kept his promises in our hearts. And we will be hated for it. Or we could choose power. We can pinky promise our way through life. And we can be concerned about our name and our fame and our glory, our street cred. And in the end, we will hear the words of Jesus saying to us, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? This seemingly harmless text here about words and speech and about oaths. It's either a beacon of truth for us or it's a noose of power. Don't resign yourself to the power that Harari leaves us with. I beg of you this morning to choose truth. Choose truth. Please stand as we respond.